Today at Reader's Corner, our second half of an interview with Deepo Faloyan about his book, Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent. Thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner. I'm Bob Kustra. Every now and then we find a book so interesting we can't squeeze it into one interview, so we did two interviews. Last week we talked to Deepo Faloyan about his book, Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent, and we're going to continue that conversation today. Deepo Faloyan is a senior editor at Vice, where he focuses on race, culture, and identity around the world. Last week, Deepo, we were talking about uh, how most African nations in their recent history uh, have contended with a man who doesn't know when to quit. Robert Mugabe is the example uh, you used. Uh, he is hardly alone in this. I wonder if you could comment. First of all, there's some nations where it's, as you point out in one of your chapters, it's a family business. Mm-hmm. But then there's other cases like Gaddafi, of course, where it's not. And how about uh, Rwanda, which, mm-hmm. of course, Americans probably know a little bit more about. The world probably knows a little bit more about Rwanda because of the movie Hotel Rwanda. Perhaps you can elaborate on that one. Yeah, certainly. Um, to go from the probably the main dynamic that was created after independence, what you had was you had many of the freedom fighters who had fought for uh, their country's independence. They were the ones who were given the first opportunity to run these new countries. You know, it was sort of seen as a reward for the work that they had done in those in those years fighting for independence. Unfortunately, for many countries, you know, many of these these men um, were certainly more suited to the battlefield than they were to politics. But it was just understood at the time that that it was only it was only fair that they that they be the ones to try and and build these new nations, whatever they may be, into the future. Um, and you still had many of the dynamics that were uh, introduced by the colonialists. So many of the sort of the divide and rule. Uh, dynamics of ethnic groups sort of not having much trust with other ethnic groups and at the top of these ethnic groups you still had men who were they had a mindset that was kind of more fixed towards military solutions rather than diplomacy um and so this created this sort of constant kind of whirlwind of oh let's 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 choose sort of conflict to try and resolve these issues or let let's see who you know, who's stronger, let's, let's arm wrestle our way through these rather than find more diplomatic means. And, and that was a, certainly a challenge in those, in those early years after the independence movement. And, but then you have these dynamics kind of play out in many different ways. And so in certain cases, you had sort of families who, who held on to power. Um, you see it in sort of like Equatorial Guinea, for example. And Rwanda is a really interesting case because you have, Paul Kagame, who sort of came into power soon after the civil war, a really, really brutal civil war in which many of his own uh, ethnic group um, were slaughtered. And the the expectation was that he would enter into power and he would seek vengeance in the similar way to how um, Robert Mugabe did um, when he eventually found his way into power. But Kagame picked a different path early on um, and he he chose the path of reconciliation and trying to find a way in which people could not stop identifying more as part of their own ethnic group. Rather, they should, you know, identify as Rwandan. Um, and it was it was a difficult, difficult process, but it was one that certainly bore a lot of fruit 
And, uh, you know, he is someone who has been praised all around the world for the efforts that he's done in that regard. Unfortunately, he's sort of slipping more into seeing if he can kind of hold on to power and um, leverage some of that sort of international respect um, into trying to keep hold of hold of power. But there are so many of these dynamics that play out across the region that you can link directly to many of the sort of the ethnic strifes that were introduced during colonialism. And it's also really important to remember that this is all very short history. We're talking about the 1960s. You know, my parents are older than Nigeria itself. And these countries have had very little, if any, time to really come to terms with what they inherited, to build new national identities, to build new national traditions, um, to build out the sense of patriotism. And it's it's been something that has taken time and has taken a lot of work. And when people kind of understand that, then, you know, I think that a lot more credit is due to these countries uh, for the amount of work that they put in, in a very short period of time. Last week, we talked about the stereotypes that over the years have come to, uh, to describe Africa. And uh, you give Hollywood uh, credit for, uh, this is a great term, cleanly packaged stereotypes of Africa. Uh, that's well put. And you say literature comes in second. I wonder, just, just rattle off for us a few, a few novels that, uh, uh, where that, that's the case. And then you have to comment on the film that I'm sure many of our listeners remember, Independence Day, and how <laughs> you might say it committed film genocide. um yes i mean i mean if you you look at films uh you sort of see films like heart of dark uh, sorry books in terms of like you know heart of darkness and 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 there 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 was sort of a period especially during the 13 40s and 50s where africa was seen as this mysterious uh far off place where mysterious people live and they just do mysterious things and 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 literature really sort of really took a lot of that and, and, and expressed it as fact. But then obviously Hollywood comes along and, and there is just something so convincing about well-packaged films that have big budgets and, and, uh, and these sort of big, big casts that depict Africa as sort of the backdrop. All we ever see are sort of Africans, uh, often either sitting around waiting for a Western hero to come in and save them from, uh, an approaching disaster or uh, it's a games reserve or a safari park where, uh, you know, two Westerners come to fall in love and, mm-hmm. and the African locals are just the, the backdrop and they're these sort of cheeky tribal people who ride around on elephants and, you know, have broad smiles, but no real sort of complicated lives themselves. And so, you know, you, we've, we've gotten very used to seeing it and it's often done, you know, with a bit of a smile. And when that is the case, it becomes incredibly difficult um, to sort of really appreciate the damage that that can do in sort of carrying on these stereotypes. Um, and I talk about Independence Day, a film that I absolutely love, by the way, as I make clear in the book, but there's, there's every time I watch it, there's a, a truly hilarious couple of scenes in the end. Um, one where it's time for the, you know, all the, all the global powers to come together and, uh, fulfill the final plan to defeat the aliens. Uh, and so we sort of tour all the air forces around the world. We go to the UK, we go to Asia, uh, we go through across Europe and obviously North America. And, but unfortunately, you know, no African, um, air forces are invited along to, to join the great rescue party. And then we, uh, and then we have a scene where, 
you know, we, we, we look around the world to see everyone celebrating, um, and representing Africa are just, uh, are just a bunch of tribesmen holding up spears into the sky. You know, there are, there are no urban cities or people sitting around watching TV or driving in cars like the rest of the world. And, you know, we've just become so used to that as being the imagery that represents Africa that, you know, we sort of see it and we don't think twice about it. We don't think, oh, you know, I'm sure there's more to this vast region than, than just men and women in barely clothed, arming spears, jumping up and down with ritualistic rhythm. Um, you know, that, that, that certainly there are people in, in high rise buildings and in skyscrapers and in bars and, and, uh, restaurants who would have certainly, who certainly would have found more exciting modern ways to ce- celebrate, um, saving the world from impending disaster and doom. Um, but yeah, it is, you see, you see so many examples of this in, in modern films. And then there's the late actor Chadwick Bosman who had to fight for his African voice in Wakanda. And Wakanda is uh, a very different kind of uh, portrayal of an African nation than anything perhaps that came before it. Yeah, certainly. I think Black Panther is really a really interesting uh, case study in, in how to, or, or one possible way of approaching depicting the region. You know, what they did with that film was they chose specificity. You know, they tried to focus as much they, as they could on creating a world that was specific to itself. The, the, I talk about Black Panther in a chapter called There's No Such Thing as an African Accent. Um, because there is this idea that, you know, oh, Africans all speak the same and we see it in, in Hollywood films. But in the sort of the creation of Black Panther, you had a, a creative team that wanted to, uh, focus on trying to be as specific as possible, creating, uh, specific costumes and the way they uh, use language and, Chadwick Boseman um, insisted on on working on a specific accent. I think initially they wanted him to have a British accent um, because they felt that um, you know it would appeal to more a, a wider worldwide audience. But you know he and uh, the director Ryan Coogler insisted that you know they should try and develop an, an accent specific to uh, to this country. And I think it's just so key what they did was they worked incredibly hard not to paint this. African country is just a backdrop to some other story, but you know, these were protagonists. They had their lives and livelihoods and their futures in their own hands. And it's a really essential way of telling the story of, of when you try and tell the story of an African country, of course, you know, Wakanda doesn't exist in real life, but um, it's, it's one way of approaching and just thinking about the idea, which is based in reality, that this is a region that is full of, communities that are as technologically, culturally, and scientifically advanced as anywhere else in the world. Um, and I think, and, and it bore fruit again, you know, Black Panther was incredibly successful. It continues to be incredibly successful because the, of that specificity is so needed in the way in which the continent is depicted uh, in popular culture um, and the respect that was given by the creators of the film. And I think it's also important to note that as well as to say, you know, Wakanda doesn't exist, that, you know, this is a, a incredibly prosperous land. And it, it's also important that stories around African countries don't, you know, only have to be about these, these big, incredibly successful countries. They can just be, you know, stories of everyday life, you know, mm-hmm. kids going off to college, two friends going on a road trip, people falling in love in meet cutes in interesting ways. You know, it's, it's, there are so many ways of, of, of telling stories because, 
this is a continent that is full of of everything and anything and i think that that's so essential that hopefully with time you know hollywood really leans into trying to tell as many varied and diverse stories as possible and if hollywood doesn't do it maybe nollywood yes yeah, certainly and uh i must say uh this is one that got me. I wasn't that familiar with Nollywood. And that yeah. begins with an N for our listeners who think I'm running over Hollywood. This has nothing <laughs> to do with Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> tell us about about Nollywood and the Afrobeats uh, yeah. as, as two movements that really are attempting to build a cultural legacy. And as you pointed out, uh, these African nations are so young that mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's going to take time for these cultural legacies to build up. In a minute, we're going to talk about how some of those cultural legacies have been destroyed uh, by uh, the colonizers. But before we get to that, Nollywood. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Nollywood is the Nigerian film industry. Um, and it, it's probably the most successful film industry on the continent. And it is so successful and so loved because it, it does what I mentioned just now. It tells stories of just the everyday life. Um, and it has certainly found an audience because of that. And we see that across the continent, it, 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 it has found a real strong supporters base. And, and it, it does incredibly well. Many Nollywood uh, production companies have, have recently signed deals with Netflix um, that has seen these films uh, now being shown on Netflix and, and regularly new Nollywood releases uh, clock in in the top 10 of films worldwide, um, which just shows the desire that, that exists out there to watch films that tell, uh, you know, exciting everyday stories of the continent. Um, and Afrobeats is a really interesting one as well, because Afrobeats is, you know, one, currently one of the most successful um, music genres in the world right now. It's, you know, a bunch of West African performers who are singing and rapping in their own accents, in their own languages, um, telling the story of everyday life as they see it through their eyes. Um, it's not the, the main sort of themes often are around having a good time with your family and friends and, and, you know, certainly has this sort of bounce and party vibe to it. Um, and it, and you see people around the world connecting with it and not just people from the continent or people from West Africa, but, you know, people who, um, whose cultures they may have previously thought are completely different to what a quote unquote African culture might be like. Um, but they're finding those connections through music and, and you're seeing just how successful that can be when you give that space, um, for creators across the continent to tell their own stories, to really stand up and be given the space, um, to show people that, you know, life, throughout the region is varied, it's diverse, but it's also no different than what we see in Europe and in North America and in Asia. You know, there is that connective tissue. And often with the sort of the stereotypical images that we've seen in the past, it's made it hard for people to build real connections with the region on a personal level. Because if you see somewhere as just being uh, completely overrun by pain and suffering and and where nothing but misery grows, it's hard to see your own life in that. It's hard to connect with that on a personal level. Sure, you can send $2 a month somewhere or, um, you know, sponsor a child or something, you know, but you don't see these people as, as being on the same level as you. You don't equate their lives with your own lives. And the power of popular culture to present people with a completely new experience or a new culture 
and connect them with that and for people to imagine themselves engage with that culture is huge and afrobeat and nollywood are just you know two of the uh scenes across africa that's doing that but you also have ama piano in southern africa uh, and you have a history of incredible writers throughout the region who have and will continue to try and tell uh really broad diverse stories of you know who they are and their communities you're listening to Deepo Faloyan. He is the author of Africa is Not a Country. And we're going to be switching here to a subject that's a tough one, what you call and what is looting over the years. Uh, the colonizers uh, ripped off African nations of their cultural legacy by removing many of the treasures now residing in Western museums around the world. Deepo, I wonder if you could talk to us. Uh, let's go back to pre-colonial, the Kingdom of Benin. I, I was most fascinated with especially the part about the wall being longer than the Great Wall. Uh, yeah. you, can explain, you can explain that. But uh, maybe that will, will help us understand the rich resources, the cultural mm-hmm. resources that were uh, part of Africa and over the years uh, taken from them. And now the question is, what are we going to do about that? And I have a number of questions uh, to follow up on that, but let's just uh, let you kick it off. Yeah, you can, you know, talk about so many wonderful kingdoms across the region pre-colonial before these nations were invented. But Kingdom Benin is one in which um, explorers and and, and people who came to the region, it it was a kingdom in Western Africa. And so people who'd come to West Africa to to trade and and to visit this region went away and wrote about what an incredible place this was, how the roads were built um, sort of in these incredible fractal shapes. Um, and how it had this winding wall that was at one point one of the largest structures on earth that was uh, covered with these incredible artifacts and uh, that were created by local craftsmen and these beautiful things that we now known as the uh, are now known as the Benin bronzes um, and this was an incredibly uh, prosperous land that was the envy of of, of so many of so many people um, and it was completely destroyed by a raid that was aimed at just stealing many of these artifacts. In fact, all of the artifacts that were plundered and looted from the kingdom and were taken to museums around the world. Um, And that's where these items continue to reside to this day. And we have this story playing out across the region. Uh, There's a chapter in the book entirely dedicated to the looting. um, And it's not, you know, that the looting happened a long time ago. It's an ongoing thing. It never ended. Uh, these items were taken and they continue to remain outside of the continent. In fact, 90% of Africa's material cultural legacy currently resides outside of the region. And it's this ongoing pain that has been inflicted on, on countries that want to tell their own stories, but are finding it hard because, you know, they don't have many of these artifacts to use to actually tell these stories. How many museums in America are in possession of these looted artifacts? Oh, there are, uh, there are quite a few. Um, there are dozens of them because it's not just in museums as well. It's in colleges, in private collections. And when we talk about artifacts, we also talk about human remains as well. Um, during colonialism, uh, especially uh, in Germany, many of the remains um, from uh, the victims of, of this violence were taken to Europe to try and 
as part of uh, these racist experiments to try to prove that, you know, you could tell uh, that black people are not as smart as white people based on the size of their skulls and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you, 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 you have these items all across America and Europe, especially uh, here in London, as well as in Belgium and France. Um, you're talking about tens of thousands of items, if not hundreds of thousands of items, when you include uh, the human remains in that. I, I still want to pursue this subject, but I, you mentioned Germany, and I just wanted you to comment, if you could, on German Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia. Uh, mm-hmm. That was, I believe, the first genocide of the 20th century. Could you tell us what happened there? Yeah, um, in, in what was then known as German uh, Southern Africa, it was one of the most brutal regimes that existed during the colonial period. And, and much of that fed into these sort of racist experiments, but in which uh, concentration camps were set up um, and it was absolutely devastating. You saw a uh, genocide of almost an inc- entire ethnic group. Um, and it, it spread in so many different areas of, of the German colonies. Um, and again, it, it's something that uh, isn't taught enough about you know, again, this is kind of the birth of so many African countries, and it was a really, really brutal regime. How does the declaration of the importance and value of universal museums deal with this theft of all of these uh, cultural resources being taken off to other countries uh, and basically a refusal to return them? It, 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 I think you call call it the core justification. How did they pull this off? And they didn't do it very well, if you ask me. No, it's an it's an incredible trick. They've they've they, they've created this myth that says that um, that positions the theft of the items as something that happened a long time ago, and uh, now we're no longer in a period of theft. What we're in, they claim, is a period where these items are now able to be viewed around the world because they exist in museums that are in the West and museums in the West are of a higher caliber. Um, they're considered universal museums because it, apparently anybody can just travel to London and New York to see them. Um, and it's this incredible idea that, uh, you know, cities in the West are universal, whereas uh, cities in Africa are, are not. They're local. They're not, they're not places that, you know, people can or or should go to the level of a place like a New York or a Paris or London. And so the main museums in the world came together to justify the continued hoarding of these looted items by saying that these items are better off with the Western world because then more people will come and see them uh, in a civilized environment. And, you know, that obviously ignores the fact that, you know, many of these same countries are implementing immigration policies that make it impossible for most of the world to easily just come and, and see these items, especially the people who live in the countries uh, that the items actually belong to. And so this this ongoing theft is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And, you know, just one example of the scale of it, you have the British Museum has about 900 Benin bronzes in its collection. Only 100 of them are ever on display. About 800 of them remain in permanent storage. And it's something that it's hard to justify how that can be allowed to continue. And, and Nigeria, you know, and, and other countries are saying, you know, we'd happily lend you back some to have on display, but it would be great if we have the vast majority of them. Many of them you don't even seem to want to display in the first place uh, so we can tell our own stories. 
Yeah, I mean, what really got me was the point you made about the fact that they're not even on display in so many of these yeah. museums. So why would they not be willing to give them up? I I wonder if there's ever a possibility for there to be some kind of, I hate to say this because I know this isn't the perfect solution, but alone anyway, or some period of time where nations are given back these artifacts to show in their own countries. Has anybody ever pulled that off? Yeah, it's it's sort of this it's this continued thing that they are um they're they're constantly trying to negotiate and it's a real it's a real ongoing sort of challenge because you know they'll say oh you can take sort of three or four or here here are ten you can have for a month but for many of these countries it's hard to you know firstly it, it feels for them you know insulting that you're having to sort of beg to have your own items lent back yeah. to you but as well as it's hard to it's hard to curate a museum if you don't even know when or where you're going to have these items. It's completely out of your hands. And it doesn't even need to be, you know, these items will continue to be on display in the West. These countries, African countries would love to have their items on display in the West telling their stories, but they also just want to have a sense of ability to, you know, own these items and be able to to tell their own stories on their own terms. Yeah. Well, Deepo, my mother did teach me that uh, two wrongs do not make a right. But I must tell you, I was really fascinated by the approach that Mazulu Diabanza has taken, uh, nicknamed the Robin Hood of restitution. (laughs) And by the way, for our listeners, you can Google this guy's name and you'll get all kinds of really interesting articles and background about him. But uh, in the meantime, why don't you tell us about uh, his approach to getting these back? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's essentially said, you know, well, you stole it from us. Let's try and steal them back from you. Um, and you know, what, what he does is more sort of symbolic. As I explain in the book, he, he goes into museums. He, he gives a long speech, museums across the West. He gives a speech and then he sort of grabs these items and then slowly walks out of the museum, obviously giving, uh, security plenty of time and, and chance to, to grab him. Um, but he, he's, he's just, you know, trying to make a statement that, um, you know, you wouldn't accept these items being stolen from you or your own items. Like, why do we continue to accept this ongoing theft that continues? Um, why do we consider it to be appropriate? And it's personal for him. You know, many of these, there are artifacts there that tell the story of his family and his ancestors. And it's, it's something that he's, he's, you know, desperate to have back so that that opportunity is is given to his people to, to to tell their own stories. How successful has France's President Macron been? Uh, he seemed to break out of the European pact a bit when it comes to returning artifacts that France looted. Maybe you could share with us that report that came out and whether it has done any good. Yeah, certainly. He commissioned a report that found that, that found that ninety percent of all of Africa's material cultural legacy has been stolen from the continent, and and he promised that. Uh, work would be undertaken in a few years to have these items returned back to back to the continent, the ones France had at least. And it was a really it was a really incredibly important report that really laid out just how devastating the ongoing looting is. Um, but you know, it's been difficult because there are so many committed interests in the museum world who have fought back, who have pointed to laws that say that they can't or shouldn't return these items. And so he, you know, he, he, he has had to fight back. 
or he's been faced with kind of real organized opposition amongst the museum world that is terrified about the realities of what it would mean for them if they had to return these items back. Um, and, and that's the sort of ongoing frustration that the museum world just has decided to continue to contribute to this ongoing um, looting because it is in their interest rather than acknowledging the devastation of, of taking nation's artifacts in this way. As you close your book, you address this issue of relatively young African nations uh, building their governments and their economies at the same time that climate change has hit them and hit them very hard. Uh, I wonder if you could comment on that, especially since so little of what the greenhouse gas problem is uh, Mm -hmm. emanates from Africa. Yeah, certainly. Um, and it's one of those great frustrations. You know, it, African countries are very much not contributing um, to the rise in the impact we're seeing in global warming. Um, I believe uh, the United Kingdom contributes more in greenhouse gas emissions than the entire continent combined. Um, and these are the countries that are going to suffer the most from the effects of climate change. We're seeing those effects in so many regions across the region already. And we're seeing uh, so many African countries who have invested a huge amount in, you know, uh, solar panels and, and other measures, um, you know, and they're, and they're calling on the rest of the world to step up in a big way. Um, this is something that, you know, these countries are not causing, but they will have, uh, they will suffer hugely from. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating to see the lack of concerted effort across the world in actually facing up to the realities of climate change. What's the significance of Ghana's year of return 400 years later after the first peoples of Africa were sent abroad mm. as slaves? Yeah, th- this was an attempt to see, to try and connect the diaspora with the continent itself. It was decided that they would introduce a year in which anybody across diaspora who wanted to build a real connection with the continent and to come and see for itself, especially African-Americans, who you know were, were, were taken from the continent so long ago and have and have since lost um, so much understanding of their heritage because of the devastations of slavery. Um, who have looked to to try and build these real relationships, but you know so far there hasn't really been anything that they can kind of hold their hats to when when you look at hold their hat on when you look at kind of the way in which Hollywood and popular culture depicts Africa in this sort of fake way, you know, it, it, there isn't anything real. And so what Ghana did was it said, you know, come, come and start that journey here in Ghana. Let's start to build these connections. And I think it's something that we're seeing uh, more and more uh, as we get further away from the sort of that independence era and those initial years of chaos, we're starting to see, Many African countries who had to spend some time looking inward in those initial years start to look outward and start to say, right, okay, let's, let's see how, uh, you know, we can build connections with other countries across the continent, but as well as with the diaspora, um, who are looking to, you know, come back, uh, quote unquote home, um, or to try and see, uh, how they can visit the continent or, or build lives there, perhaps. Um, come and do it in a real way and see for yourself what this region is all about. You know, it reminds me of my daughter in between her junior and senior year in college decided she wanted to go off uh, and see the world and mo- most mm-hmm. importantly, help build schools. And she yeah. went to Ghana. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's when you were talking earlier uh, mm-hmm. about all the good faith attempts uh, to improve nations in Africa, 
how they sometimes don't work out. Hers was one that didn't work out, but thanks to the local Ghanaians, they picked her up and took care of her for the rest of the yeah. summer, and she had a great experience. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's the way it goes. Yeah. So what is the creation of the Union of African States? Tell us about what you call constructive collectivism by African nations. This is the idea of pan-Africanism, essentially, that, you know, to form kind of one great nation um, and to face the world's challenges together as one. Um, and, you know, it had some prominent supporters in the early days um, in sort of the first president of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, um, some support from you know, key members across the diaspora as well. Uh, it didn't have a huge amount of uh, support across the continent because, you know, many of the independence leaders sort of had their first opportunity to carve these nations that they had fought for and they didn't really want to necessarily give that up. And, you know, it, it's too big of a region to try and actually uh, come together in, in some sort of kind of shared understanding. But what you're kind of seeing now is is now that these countries are, are really established and have done a real amount of work to set themselves up. They're now able to spend more time looking outward and to build strong connections between countries. Um, and, you know, we, we see the, the benefit of nations with these strong independent identities working with other nations um, who have a certain shared history, um, especially amongst young people and youth activist movements to try and see where there is common ground and where they can uh, leverage so much of what uh, they've come to know and understand. And I think that that's something that is so uh, critical across the, the continent now. And I think that when people see the work that's been done since the independence era um, to take what were incredibly challenging countries that were given, that were forced on them against their will and to turn them into nations that are making such huge contributions around the world, then people will stop looking at Africa as some kind of a failed story, but one of actual, one of kind of more of a success story. Well, Depot, I want to thank you for writing this book and writing it so well. It's beautifully written. There's a, a bit of humor in it that uh, <laughs> keeps the reader going. Uh, I, I can't say enough. Uh, I hope our listeners can get out and get a copy of Africa is Not a Country, Notes on a Bright Continent by Depot Faloyan. Depot, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you, thank you guys so much. It's been so incredible to, uh, to turn this into a double session. It means so much to me, and I really, really appreciate that. So right. thank you. Thank you so much. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.